0: Good morning, everybody. Want to invite our children to Children's Church, if we have any? <laughs> yeah, I think we do. Um, and uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. Um, just a reminder, uh, President Trump asked that we uh, take today as a day of prayer uh, in the face of a pandemic. And so um want to respect his his uh, wise request, and, and let's pray for the, the pandemic that we face. Psalm 91 says, nor the error that flies by day, nor, his pe- nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Lord, that's our prayer. We ask that you would lead us to, to take shelter under your wings, to hide under your pinions, Lord, to, to come to you for deliverance. And Lord, with you, we know that the, the pestilence that uh, stalks by darkness will not overtake us. Lord, it, it will not destroy what you have given us, which is eternal life. And, Lord, the, the terror that comes by day, Lord, it, it won't overshadow us. It won't eliminate from us the hope that we have in you. And so, Lord, in these troubling times, I pray especially for your church in America. Lord, would you strengthen her? Would you fill her with faith, cause her to trust in you, and make her remarkable, that people would see that, that these Christians have hope, um, and Lord, for our nation as a whole, we pray that you would stem the flow of uh, this, this disease, this, uh, this virus that's, that's coming, that's here, uh, so that our health care system might not be overwhelmed, so that our elderly will not be at risk. Lord, would, would you give um, the leaders of this nation uh, great wisdom and great understanding and Lord, I pray for the health care professionals in our nation that you would watch over them, keep them safe from the, the virus, and give them the strength that they need to endure the uh, the care that they will have to provide. And uh, Father, would you do all of these things in the name of Jesus so that he might be glorified, so that maybe our nation will turn again to uh, to look to you to see that um, that you do provide. And Lord, use this opportunity, this, this uh, fear that has stalked us, this pestilence that's knocking at the door. Lord, use it for your glory and for the building up of your church and for the great proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now as we look into your word, that we would see what it is you have to say to us this morning, that we would appreciate the promises that you make, hold on to them, and have great confidence in you. And we ask all of these things in Christ our Savior. Amen. So chapter 24 is nice and short. Uh, when I sent it to Ramey, he said, do you want to read the whole thing? I was like, yeah, it's only 18 verses. <laughs> Not that bad. We can do that. Um, nice and short. And it sits at really a, a, the, the crux of the, the, um, the book here. We're about to transition again. Last week, what we saw was the promises of the covenant. The week before that, we saw all the law. Then, then God makes, in, uh, the end of chapter 23, makes all these wonderful promises. And now what we're at with tra- chapter 24 is we are going to ratify that covenant. Um, Moses is going to pronounce it to the people. The people agree, and then there is a ceremony that ratifies this covenant. And, um, and so what that leads us to is at the end of that ratification of that covenant, the next thing that happens is the tabernacle. God's going to start giving instructions on how to build a tabernacle, on, on uh, donations for it and everything. So this is kind of that, that pivot point before we move into the last portion of the book, which, uh, if you remember, I said was God with us. That's the point of the tabernacle. And it's, uh, it's instructive that at this point, God shows up. So you remember what I've said, my, my hermeneutic is when God speaks, that's the point. That's the important part of the, uh, the story. But when God shows up, that's even better. <laughs> so that's what happens today. So let's take a look at it. Now, as, if you were paying attention as Steve was reading through it, um, the story kind of jumps around a lot, doesn't it? It starts out at the beginning with God calls... Uh, Aaron, and, uh, Moses and Aaron and his sons and 70 elders up on the mountain. And then um, they don't go up until verse nine. And then when they go up, then all of a sudden in verse 13, Moses and Joshua go up. Wait, Joshua, where'd he come from? <laughs> he, he just kind of shows up in the story. And then at the very end in verse 15, Moses goes up by himself. And so it seems like, you know, this, this going up is kind of jumbled through the story. But really what's going on, if you pay attention, is it's Moses, Aaron, and his sons, 70 elders, go up on the mountain. And then called into the cloud is Moses and Joshua. Then called into God's presence is only Moses. So it, there's a narrowing. It's not a repetition. It's this narrowing. And then the other thing that kind of gets repeated is Moses reads the people the rules that God has given them. He reads to them. This is all that God said. Um, he, that happens in verse 3, and the people agree. And then again, in verse 7, Moses reads it, and the people agree again. So is that kind of repetitious? Well, probably not. What's going on in verse 3 is Moses is presenting the case to them. This is the covenant. And they say, okay, we'll do that. And so what happens then in verse 7 is not a repetition as much as it is this is now the ceremony. So it's like a wedding rehearsal. Like you, you ask your, your uh, fiancé, will you marry me? And they say, yes, I will. And then when you get to the altar, you kind of ask them again, will you take this man? So it's kind of that repetition, but in the ceremonial setting. So again, that's not just a a kind of a vain repetition or a pointless repetition. It's the difference is, will you do this? Yes, we will. Okay, then let's do that. And it happens in a covenant ceremony. And then finally, in the last one is, is the whole group that goes up on the mountains sees the God of Israel. And then at the end, it's, Uh, the nation sees God's glory up on the mountain. And that's clearly not a repetition, right? Because what is described that the group on the mountain sees is very different than what the group in the camp see. The group on the mountain see one thing, but the group in the camp see not God himself, but the glory of God. And it looks like a consuming fire. So again, there's not repetition so much in it, but there is is these details that kind of flop back and forth. So let's take a little bit closer look at this. Um, So the Lord tells Moses, come up, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and seven of the elders and worship from afar. So come up the mountain, but not all the way. Um, Nadab and Abihu, we've met before. They were mentioned in a genealogy. I think it was f- chapter 15, if I remember right. Um, and then they're mentioned here. And the next time we see them, it doesn't go well. It's in numbers and they get executed. Um, and so one of the commentators said, well, then this probably happened because you know if they were making up the story, they wouldn't include them, they're the bad guys. Like, or, you know, it just, it really happened and they happened to be there because they weren't bad guys until they went. It, yeah, it's, the critical scholars make you chuckle until they make you cry often. So um, what the, the pronouncement at the beginning of the story is, you, this group will come up to the mountain, but only Moses will approach me. So they go up on the mountain. So that's, that's what happens then. Now, the next section is, is this covenant ceremony. Um, Moses tells the people... And the people respond, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they say, everything that was in the book of the covenant, that was the end of chapter 20 to uh, chapter 23, with all of those rules, they say, we will do those. Those are, those are what we will do. The Ten Commandments, all of that, they agree to it. Um, as a matter of fact, they, they, the, the possibility that they're referring primarily to the Ten Commandments because it's all the words that the Lord has spoken. And uniformly, the way the Ten Commandments are referred to is the ten words, um, the ten davarim, which is the word for words. So it may be that that's like taking the place of, or, or this prime example, this is uh, 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 the book of the covenant begins with that, and so we're going to agree to all of it. So that's what's going on. Moses writes it all down for him, so he writes out the whole book of the covenant. And then in the morning, it says he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the log. God gives very explicit directions for how you will and how you will not build altars. Altars are not to have steel wielded against them and chiseled into beautiful shapes and elaborate forms. At this point in redemptive history, you pick up some rocks and you stack them up and you build a big mound of dirt and that's your altar. So that's undoubtedly what you see here. So you know, kind of might be tempted to think of like the altar from the tabernacle or the, the temple and this big elaborate beautiful thing. It's not, it's a pile of rocks. Big flat slab, and they're going to build a fire on it. And then it says that he set up twelve pillars, and that probably represents the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, The other, the thing to to note there is in the law, God says you will not make covenants with these um, these gods in that land. You will not worship them. You will tear down their pillars. But in this case, they set up pillars because it's not to their gods. So it's not you know, there's something horrible about pillars. It's You won't, you won't let their pillars of their God stand, but you know, Moses puts these as a tribute to remind Israel, this is what we've done. So years later, they may come back and find those rocks piled up and go, yeah, that was the covenant, that's when we did that. So he sets up the, 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 um, the uh, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who, burnt, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings, offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now, they don't have priests yet. God has not given that portion of the law where he, he says, these are the priests. So what they say instead is, he, Moses grabs some young men and says, go offer oxen. So why young men? Well, because oxen are big, and they weigh a lot, and they're pretty heavy. And you've got to haul them up and get them up off the ground to let the blood out of them before you offer them on the, on the altar. You've got to pick up this big chunk of meat, throw it on the altar. So yeah, that's a young man's job. Um, That would not be me. I would be supervising, probably. So that's why the young men are doing it. They're they're not priests yet. Uh, The the priestly office hasn't quite been established, but it's kind of given us a foretaste, looking forward to it. Um, And then it mentions that they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. And, And these are apparently something that the Israelites would have known what that meant because Moses gives no elaboration on this. They offered sacrifices before, uh, with Jesbro, and it was the same kind of offerings, and there's just no elaboration on it. Um, what we do know is when they talk about a burnt offering, you would take your, your animal, and you would let the blood out of it, and then you would slaughter it, and you'd put all of the meat on the altar and burn it all up. And that would be God's memorial portion. God doesn't actually eat, so it's not like he's going to, you know, that's his food. But that is his portion that is consumed by the fire. It's totally burned up. But the peace offering, what they would do is they would take it, they would slaughter it, and certain portions would go on the altar, and the rest would be roasted or boiled, and you would sit down and feast on that. So the sacrifice wasn't just this bloody, awful thing. Sometimes it was a barbecue. It was a picnic. We're going to sit down and eat. And, and that's probably what happens later when they go into God's presence and they eat and drink, is they're probably eating this peace offering. So that's what they do, is they offer that. They gather up the blood. They put it into basins, and it says that Moses threw half of the blood on the altar and the rest he threw, uh, or uh, he threw some on the altar, and then he took the book of the covenant and he read it again to the people. This is actually what you're going to do. And they again say, That's what we're going to do. And so Moses took blood and threw it on the people. <laughs> Doesn't that just sound gross? He with a big pan and goes like that. There's later in the Bible, as, we'll read it in a little bit. Hebrews says that he, it was with hyssop and, and, and some other stuff. So it might have been a sprinkling rather than you know, chucking a big. Bucket of blood on people. Some of the commentators thought it was uh, they threw the blood on the pillars because the pillars are representing the people. Um, It says that it threw it on the people, so I'm going to go with that. That's probably what happened. And so Moses throws it on the people and he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So that brings us back again to what is a covenant? And and what is, when we talk about biblical covenants between God and his people, a covenant at its basic most, most root idea is it is an oath-bound promise. It is God saying, this is what I am going to do. I am offering my oath. Sometimes it's attended with a ceremony. So you remember when Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham, he had Abraham cut animals in half and line them up and walk through them. He, God walked through them. Abraham was sound asleep. Um, in this case, there's, there's this slaughtering of these animals and this blood that's splattered. But with David, it was just God came up and said, yeah, I'm going to do this. There's no blood or any of that stuff. So um, sometimes There's one particularly famous uh, covenant theologian who says that covenants are are blood-bound promises. And I'm like, well, explain to me the Davidic covenant then because there's no blood there. There's a threat of it, but there's no blood. So the blood in this case is not a root portion of what a covenant is, but it is a demonstration of what a covenant is which is God saying, I am going to do this. Now, the thing is, God doesn't make covenants for himself. It's not like he says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make this covenant so I know I won't forget. Um, I'll, I'll never let it slip. I remember in seminary. Cool. <laughs> Did I say something wrong? Um, I remember in seminary one time, um, Jillian was, my youngest daughter was, still pretty young, and she said, Papa, can we go to the, the park? And there was a nice park kind of up the street, and I said, yeah, sure. And she, said, she looked at me very solemnly and said, do you promise? And I said, yes, I promise. Because I'm sitting there with a bunch of books and studying, and I said, yes, I promise. Why did she ask me, do you promise? Because she knew what I was like. I would get overwhelmed and just, you know, so eaten up with this stuff. So I, she made me promise because she needed to hold me accountable so that I would take her to the park and so we would go to the park. So when God makes a covenant, do we have to look at God and say, do you promise? Does God need that in order to be accountable to us? Is God's word ever not true? If he says he's gonna do a thing, does he do the thing? He does and so the covenant is not for him. Because he knows what his purposes are. He knows he will be faithful to it. So when he makes a covenant, he makes it for our benefit. And so that's what happens here with these the Israelites, is, is that God makes them this covenant in graphic form with blood splattered on altar and on people. And, and it's kind of the same thing that he said to Abraham, which is, when he cut those animals in half and laid them out and then walked up the middle, what he was saying was, if I violate the covenant, may this happen to me. Not that God has a body that's going to get cut in half. And not that he would ever violate the covenant, but he's showing the solemnity, the importance of what this covenant is like. And so with this one, he says, these animals were slaughtered in your place and the blood is splattered on the altar, which kind of stands in for me because that's where the, the sacrifice is burnt and where I accept that sacrifice. And it's splattered on you. And so that what we're saying is both of us are saying, if either one of us violate this covenant, that blood is on us. And there's no chance God is ever going to violate the covenant. So that's the dramatic picture of what happens so back in in chapter 23 verse 32 when God is announcing the laws one of the things he says to Israel is you shall make no covenant with them or their gods so it's not covenants were outlawed or um, outlawed he's saying you don't make a covenant with the people or with the gods of the people That's what I just did, I made the covenant with you, it's an exclusive covenant, you can't add to it, you can't append it, you're not gonna change it, this is the covenant that I have made, don't make it with anybody else. And so that's the the covenant ceremony that they've had, they're now in covenant with God. Weren't they already? They were sons of Abraham, Abraham had covenant with God, the covenant of circumcision and, and that, yes. But this is a new, a second covenant, another covenant on top of the Abrahamic covenant that's gonna do other great things as God is moving his purpose forward. So that's the blood of the covenant. This is the blood, the covenant that that you're sealed into. And so now what happens is we go up the mountain. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders went up. And this is the part that stopped me. And they saw the God of Israel. So they walk up the mountain and they see God. my New Testament brain kicks in at this point and I'm thinking John chapter one, no one has ever seen God at any time. The only, God, the only begotten of God, he has revealed him. So what did they see? <laughs> well, the, the easy answer would be well they saw the pre-incarnate Christ, possibly. But Moses kind of solves this for us. Um, as a matter of fact, what'll happen later in, in um, Exodus 32 when Moses says, God show me your glory and, and we get another epiphany God says, No one can see me and live. Moses is fully aware of the tension he just introduced when he threw those words out, and they saw the God of Israel. Because in the very next verse, it says, And God did not lay his hand on the chief priests, or the chief men of uh, the people of Israel. So he knows that there's this tension. So what's the answer? How do we resolve this? We don't like tension. We want answers. That's what we pay you for, preacher boy. (laughs) Give us answers. Here's the answer look at the rest of verse 10 there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. What did they see of God? They saw what was under his feet. They saw maybe his feet. It's not like they walked up and they beheld God's face in his full glory. What happens is there is this very special epiphany, this very special appearance of God in this. And the best that they get is they see his feet on something that looks like a sapphire. The, the gem that they're referring to is a lapis lazuli, which is a blue stone, a very blue, bright blue stone. And then it says that it was like heaven for clearness. So picture a very blue stone that is like the sky for clearness. And what do you think of? The sky, the sky is blue. <laughs> So it's, it's almost like what we're seeing here is God saying his, the earth is his footstool. He has put his feet on the earth. And so that's what they see. But even that is a, a, a measure of God's grace that he does not reach his hand out to destroy them because they're that close to the presence, to the very wonderful presence of God. And, and he doesn't destroy them. So it says that he did not lay his hand on the chief men. They beheld God. And they ate and they drank. So you go up and you see God, and the first thing you do is break out the red Solo cups. Th- that's not anything that flippant, that lighthearted. What this is, is this is a continuation of what we just saw. This is the covenant meal. This is, this is the, the people coming before the great king who has, who has triumphed, and they're sitting in his presence. And so think of, like, um, the Knights of the Round Table and, and King Arthur. Do you think the knights came in and just kind of kicked back and, you know, had a good old time? They were sitting in the presence of the king. There was a a measure of respect. There was a degree of respect. And so when they come into God's presence and they eat and they drink, this is a meal that is saying we have fellowship with God. We are now in covenant with him, and so now we have fellowship with him. And we can sit and we can eat and drink together. So that is what they beheld when they see God. Um, So then as they, they have this encounter the next thing that happens is the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commandment, which I've written for your instruction. So what is happening here is God is calling Moses up the mountain and he's going to give him the tablets of stone, which traditionally are understood to be the Ten Commandments. And, And what is amazing is God wrote them himself. So when you think of the Bible and how the Bible is inspired, It's not like God wrote out the entire Bible and and these these tablets fell from heaven and here's your entire Bible. This is the one place, except for one other spot, where I think God did the actual writing. So God writes the Ten Commandments out. The other place is in Daniel when his finger appears and writes on a wall. And that's bad news. So you know the story. These aren't going to survive. Moses is going to drop them and and they break. But we'll get to their, their replacement in a bit. So God is going to call him up, and he's going to carve out on stone these commandments and hand them to Moses. And so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. Remember Joshua? Last time we saw him was when they were fighting um, that battle. Um, I can't remember the name of the people they were fighting. Joshua was the one leading the troops out on the field, and Moses was holding his hands up. That was the last time we saw Joshua. He just drops him in. I think he does this because as he's writing this, of course the people know who Joshua is. He doesn't have to go into a lengthy background on him. This is Joshua, him, pointing right at him. This kind of makes it feel a little earthy, a little like, you know, this is, this is something that somebody would write in space and time and not have, you know, been invented hundreds of years later or something. Um, it just feels like, you know, a New Testament epistle where Timothy's just said, yeah, this is Timothy. You know Timothy. You've met him. A similar kind of thing going on here. So he goes up, and God is going to give him the tablets. He says, wait here. So they go up the next step of the mountain. And this time, Moses is called into the, the, uh, the very presence of God. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. So Joshua is still hanging back, but Moses goes into God's very presence. So he, you see that the crowd that gets closer to God gets narrower, doesn't it? There's only one person who can go up there. There's only one person who can make it. It sounds kind of like Psalm 24. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek is the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. So that's, that's the picture of who will ascend the mountain, The one who has got clean hands and does not lift his heart up to what is false. So Moses was perfect, right? No sin. He was a great guy. How did we get introduced to him? He killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand, tried to hide it, then had to flee because he had done this. So it's not that Moses is perfect and he had to be perfect to get up there. As a matter of fact, in verse 5 of that psalm, it says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He, Moses received righteousness from the God of his salvation, not that he was inherently perfect in every single way. So he goes up into the mountain and, and this is the last we'll see of him for a bit. He's, he's going to be kind of busy. Then the last portion is Moses backs off and he says, this is what they saw in the camp. So remember, these people are still at the camp at the base of the mountain where they were when God pronounced the, the Ten Commandments. They haven't moved. Uh, The only movement they had was to move farther away from the mountain because they were terrified of God speaking. But they're still within range of the mountain. They can still see it. And it says the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The last time there was a devouring fire on the top of this mountain, it consumed a bush. That was when God met Moses there. But now the same mountain, this fire consumes the entire top of the mountain. It is a consuming fire. This is, they don't get to see God, they get to see his glory. And remember what we said glory was. Glory is God's holiness on display in the world. His perfections on display in the world. And sometimes it takes these manifestations of just incredible natural phenomena. Looking up on a mountain and seeing flames roaring off the top of the mountain and it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't consume the mountain. But that's what it looked like was this, this fire on the top of the mountain. and and Moses enters the cloud. Moses draws near to this this kiln-like fire on the top of the mountain. He disappears into the cloud, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So what Moses will receive in those 40 days and 40 nights, which get interrupted and we'll get there, is he starts getting the the description of the tabernacle. He's given a vision of the heavenly tabernacle. This is what you are to build, and that's what's going on now. We'll, We'll do that. And we'll sum that up next week and, and kind of hit what the tabernacle is. Um, so this is the covenant. Now, remember what the covenant was founded on. It was founded on those promises that God had made to them. And they were tremendous promises. He promised them wonderful things. In uh, last chapter, in, in uh, verse, chapter 23, verse 25, he says, You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. There was that beautiful promise of, if you're faithful to the covenant, this is what life could be like for you. And so that was the the covenant that they have made. That is what they agreed to. That's what they promised they would do. Um, And what we said last week when we looked at that is we said, how is that better in the new covenant? And when it comes to this covenant, this enacting, enacting of the covenant here, Um, we get a direct quote of that in the New Testament. It's repeated for us. This is from Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to skip a couple of verses just to sum it up a bit. The author to Hebrews says, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, the first covenant couldn't deliver the promises, not because there was anything wrong with the covenant, but because there was something wrong with the people. They were sinful. And the covenant was, do this, and you will have fulfilled my covenant. And they couldn't do it. So, what, this, what the uh, author of Hebrews is telling us is wait a minute, there's a new covenant. And listen to what it does there is, he, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And that's not talking about the very first covenant in the Bible. That's referring specifically to the Mosaic covenant. So we have a better mediator for a new new covenant. For when every commandment of the law had been delivered by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Wait a minute. Anybody see any scarlet wool or, or hyssop or goats? What's going on? Did the author just misread Exodus and import a bunch of stuff? Well, I, here's, let me try to defend the author a little bit. I don't think what he's doing is exegeting um, the passage that we're looking at. He's, ex, he's not exegeting Exodus 24 at this point. What if, if you read that in context, what he's doing is he's looking at the entirety of the law. He's trying to sum up all of the law together. And so when he says, he quotes Moses as saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, he, he's quoting Exodus 24 because that's the initiation of it. But this stuff about um, uh, water and scarlet wool and hyssop, that does come up later in the law. That's, that's mentioned a few times, and it's for the cleansing of the people. If you had certain uncleanliness, you would go to a priest and he would check you and go, okay, you're over it. And then what they would do is they would take a bowl with a dove and they would, cut, they would kill the dove and pour the blood into the bowl. Then they would take another dove and roll it in the blood and release it. And then they would take scarlet wool and hyssop and they would sprinkle you over running water. And so what he's doing is he's trying to sum up all of this law and bring it together. And so he's saying, this is how you were cleansed. And this is how you were sealed is through this blood. I don't think he's confusing it. I think he's, he's just drawing it all together. And so we've got to give him a little bit of uh, space there. So the blood of calves and goats, well, we were told it was specifically oxen, which aren't calves. They're oxen. They're big. Um, but calves and goats are used throughout the law. So that's what I mean. He's, he's, he's kind of drawn it all together for us. And then the point of this, why, why does he bring up this other stuff about blood and hyssop and, and that kind of thing? He goes on, indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. So this new covenant that we're under, this this new covenant that gives us uh, redemption for the transgressions previously committed, was not sealed without blood, just like the first one wasn't sealed without blood. So this new covenant that we're in picks up on what the old covenant had promised in shadow and form, but brings it forward to us in a blood that's even better that does something even more. So later on what the uh, the author will go on to say in uh, a little later in that chapter is nor was it to offer himself repeatedly speaking of Jesus he, he didn't appear to offer himself repeatedly but as it is he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having offered having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So, so that old covenant had this, this form and this promise, looking forward to something. And what the author is saying, now Jesus shows up, and he's the mediator of a better covenant, and he doesn't come and offer these repeated sacrifices in this blood over and over again. That blood that was splashed on the altar and was splashed on the people, that wasn't the end of it. There would be this bloody stream throughout the rest of their history where, again, sin after sin would have to be atoned for and have to be atoned for and have to be atoned for because the blood of bulls and goats can't take it away. It can only answer this particular one, but it can't remove it. The promise here is there is one that's pictured in that that's coming. He will sacrifice himself once, and that blood will be sufficient. That will be enough that will actually do what is promised to happen. So later in in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel but now he reaches back. Sprinkled blood is hitting the Mosaic Covenant, and he reaches all the way back to the beginning. This, this sprinkled blood speaks better than Abel's blood. Righteous Abel, who God accepted the sacrifice from, who, who cries out from the grave for justice because his wicked brother slayed him. It, it's even a better one than that, because as righteous as Abel was, he wasn't perfect. I don't know if you've noticed, but that happens after the fall in the Bible. There's, you know, After sin is introduced to the world and, and, and sin spread to all men, so all men die. But for Jesus, he comes and he is without sin. And so that's how his blood speaks a better word. So those promises of the old covenant are, are still beautiful and they're still kind of applicable for us. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So th- why, why is it we still get sick? Why are we worried right now that there is a pandemic that is threatening us? Why have so many churches decided to suspend uh, worship, the larger churches? There's a blessing in being a small church. Um, we get under the 250 limit, and so we can still meet if we decide we need to and want to. But the bigger churches had to suspend their gathering together. So, But Lord, you promised that you, know, you would take sickness away from us, so why don't we just blow it off and get together anyway? Um, because that's not what that means. Christians still get sick. We still get all kinds of illnesses, we still grow old, and we still die. So what I think is a key to this, what really kind of helps unlock this, is if you look at John chapter 16, this is Moses, or Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's about to go to the cross. And so he offers this lengthy prayer. And in it, he says in verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So I'm announcing to this to you so that you may have peace. Oh, good. That means that we won't ever get sick. We won't be troubled by anybody. Life is going to be great because we're with you, right? Listen to what he says next. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice he did not say, I have overcome the world, therefore you will never have tribulation. What he said is, in this world, you will. It's going to happen, there will be trouble, but I have overcome the world. So what he's saying here is, this stuff will not overpower you. When these things come, they will not destroy you because you have a hope they can't touch. You have your, your heart rooted in something that no famine or persecution or execution or, or mocking on social media can ever take away from you. You have a hope that is imperishable. Take heart. You will have tribulation in the world, but I have overcome the world. And so that's what we're looking for. That's what we're hoping for. So because we have this kind of hope, especially the, the name of the sermon is Covenant in, in a Pandemic you got to preach through the times you're in, right? So how is it that this covenant can help us through this pandemic? How can, it, how can it help us serve and be Christians in this world that is just buying up all the toilet paper they can find? That, that's panicking over this. I was talking with somebody this morning, they said that, that they're seeing people who are terrified. So how is it that we can have and live hope? Well, we have precedents. We have historical precedents. In the early fourth century, uh, famine and war affected the city of Caesarea. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. So Caesarea, there's, there's famine and there's war, which means the population is weak, and so what happened next was a plague hit. People are, are falling ill because they're underfed, they're Ill, exhausted by fighting a war, and now illness shows up. So what happened? Well, people began to flee the city. You know how they're telling us to have social distancing? That is nothing new. People instinctively and inherently knew, if people are dying around me, I don't want to be around people who are dying around me. So they headed to the the, uh, hillsides. They go out into the country. And so in the midst of the fleeing, what they noticed was the Christians, who were kind of weird people to begin with, stayed. And Eusebius, who was the bishop of the city, and he was also a historian. He wrote the the, um, ecclesiastical history, so church history um, from the fourth century. Um, This is what he recorded about the plague. He said, all day long, some of them, that is the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city a multitude to those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. So as the the, the, uh, Caesareans are fleeing the city, what they're seeing Christians do is stay and care for people, care for the people who couldn't leave. And, and what Eusebius said, the result of this was, is he said that because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, the Christians, quote, deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly reverent to God. Now, the context of that is, they thought Christians were atheists, because Christians said, we don't worship those gods. Well, what do you mean you don't worship these gods? That's all the gods there are. What other god? You must be an atheist. So when they look and they see these Christians staying in the midst of the plague and caring for the weak and the poor, they're like, what's up with you people? And they come to realize there's something about their god that's compelling them. Now, decades later, this wasn't at the same time, but it was decades later, the last pagan emperor of the Roman Empire, Julian the Apostate, Um, He was called apostate because he was brought up in a Christian context, but departed from the faith and re-embraced paganism. So Julian the Apostate, he recognized Christian compassion was behind the transformation of a small movement to a culture of ascendancy, as he saw the Christians becoming more and more influential in society. He recognized that it was their compassion. And so he wrote a letter, we have a fragment of a letter to a pagan priest that he wrote, and he said, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the or the uh, pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that's what he called the Christians, impi- you impious Galileans, I want to put that on the front of the building. The impious Galileans, meet here. Um, you in- the, the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So what happened in the midst of the plague was the Christians outdid the pagans in caring for the poor. And it embarrassed them. And so Julian, he said, we should adopt that. We should treat people like that. Um, The problem was it failed because polytheism in in Rome didn't have the idea of a self-sacrificing love. They didn't have a hope of something beyond this life. For the priest to do it. They were looking at, well, I went into the priesthood to get rich. What do you mean I'm supposed to take care of poor people? That's not going to pay the bills. It, it just didn't have the same thing. So the Christians were not doing this in a social gospel kind of setting where Jesus was never named. They were known as Christians, and they served as Christians. And so when the people saw this, they went, there's something weird about you, and it's got to be your God. Now, we can't just go to uh, Caesarea and pick that up and go, we'll do the exact same thing because the situation is very different. In, In those days, everybody was religious. It depended on which god you worshiped. The emperor, Zeus, Athena, whoever. And so there was a natural tendency to go, well, it must be a religious thing. In our day and age, we're largely secular. And so if they see that, they're gonna look for other reasons. So we can't just duplicate that and I don't think it's helpful to just say, I'm doing this because of Jesus. Um, we need a little bit more context, I think. And, and, and the way that I think we can connect with serving people who are genuinely terrified and not doing it just as a nice neighbor, um, you know, like a good Mormon would do that, the way we can do that in Christ's name is first use that compassion and that, that love for them as a, in a relationship-building step. You wait. You brought stuff to my house, and and I'm terrified to go out because of the play, or the uh, the epidemic. But but you brought something to me. Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm worried about you. I'm concerned. Why? Well, because I'm a Christian, and, and Jesus died for us, and you know, and it opens opportunity. But it happens in the in the context of relationship. And, and instead of just announcing it from the rooftops, it it happens better in the the um, the context of relationship. So. We have not just a fourth century example of this. We have a much more closer to home example of this. Um, Protestant Reformation example. So Martin Luther, um, he served during the Black Plague. The Black Plague hit Europe and killed numerous people. And this is what Luther wrote about his response to the Black Plague. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. So Luther is saying there are reasonable precautions. There are things that we should do. I will fumigate, I will help purify the air, I will administer and take medicine. Whatever is deemed to be the right thing. I will, I will avoid social contact to the greatest degree possible. I will um, wash my hands regularly. I will use hand sanitizer if I can ever find any again. Um, I, I will do all of these, I will, I will elbow bump my friends, um, those kinds of things. Uh, that's, those are reasonable requests for us. But at the end, I shall not avoid person or place if uh, my neighbor needs me. And th- that's Luther, and if anybody's gonna accuse Luther of being a social gospel kind of person, We need to talk history. (laughs) He was thundering with the gospel, but the gospel isn't just this pronouncement and go and be blessed. It is also loving and helping your neighbor. And so that's what we can do. These are the kind of things that we can do. We need to have that same kind of hope though. And that's where this roots back into that idea of covenant. It goes back to the promise of the old covenant was sickness won't take you. Miscarriage won't ruin you. But in this world, we will have tribulation. We will have sickness. We will have miscarriage. We will have struggles. We will have all kinds of problems. But I have overcome the world. And and what I think Jesus is pointing us at is people who are terrified right now have no hope beyond this. This is it. This is the best I'm going to get. And so I don't want anybody to mess it up. But the problem with that is It doesn't last. It can't bear the weight of your expectation. It can't support the joy that you are built to have. So the Christians come along and they say, well, we live in this world. We enjoy this world. There are many great things in this world, but this isn't our hope. This isn't the end. We have a promise of a place with Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you, he told them. We have something that can help us transcend this. So if we face illness and potential death, it can only drive me to my Savior sooner. I'd rather not rush to it. I'd rather not run into it. But if that's necessary, I get to go see Jesus quicker. So I have a hope. I'm not terrified to leave my house. I can actually go next door and say, hey, are you guys okay? So, so what I think we should be doing is, with this gospel mindset, with this hope that we have in place, is be watching for the elderly. The elderly are the most vulnerable to this, this virus. The problem is not, it has a high mortality rate. Its mortality rate is just a little bit higher than the common flu. Uh, currently, this is all in flux because it hasn't spread really huge yet, but currently it's around 3%. Um, common flu is about 1.9% or something like that. So it's not, not like everybody's going to get sick and die. Anybody ever read The Sand by Stephen King? Never mind then. Um, It's not like that's going to happen. But what the problem is, is what we're seeing currently in Northern Italy, which has a very similar um, uh, prosperity and and density and healthcare system, is the hospitals are overwhelmed because so many people got sick all at once. So the social distancing thing for us is not so that people don't die. It's so that as the the sickness rolls forward, we don't overwhelm our medical care, that we, we pace it out some. There will be people who become very ill and need to be in the hospital. And so that's why we're going to do things like Luther said. I will not gather with people if that's what's called for. But at the same time, I'm not going to avoid it if, if somebody needs help. So if the elderly who are most vulnerable to this, um, if I see them in my neighborhood or in my church, I don't know if you've noticed we've got a few gray hairs, um, you can look around and say, do you guys need anything? Can I help you? Um, what can I do for you? Not being afraid to go to the grocery store and stand in line with a bunch of people who shouldn't be standing in line <laughs> because we're not supposed to be doing that. But you can, you can take those kind of risks because we have the hope of something even greater. There's, there's something more to it. So let's avoid social contact. Let's, let's do that, that social distancing and try to slow the spread. Let's honor that. But at the same time, let's not neglect our neighbor in doing that. And, and in doing that, that's how we show our hope in the covenant. That's how we say that the blood of this covenant is better than not being sick. The the blood of this covenant is better than than a plague. It, It can't stop this. It can't take that from us. Because Jesus' blood is what purchased us. In Acts 20, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So church... You are blood bought. You have been purchased, not with the blood of goats and bulls and sheep and and, and something perishable. You have been bought with the blood of God. Jesus Christ incarnate has bought you. You have a hope that transcends pandemic. So, So reach out to your neighbor, love your neighbor, obey the law, obey the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, care for them, watch for them, take care of each other. And in doing that, we have historical precedents that people will notice. That we will have an opportunity to offer the reason for the hope that we have. Because we're weird. What do you mean this This isn't it? There's more, you think there's more to life? And, and um, just real quick closings. Uh, President Trump said, let's have a day of prayer. And you would think that would be, oh, that's a nice thing. And instead, people on social media who hate Trump and hate prayer Set, go after him, like oh, great! So you, you know that's all we're going to do. It's like no, that's not all we're going to do, but that's at least what we can do, right? So be praying for your friends and neighbors. Let them know that you're praying for them, and not just I'm sending wishful thoughts into the universe or speaking nice things into the universe. I'm praying to I'm praying for you in the name of Jesus Christ because I know God will hear that. So so let's be engaged in the midst of a pandemic with the hope of the covenant. That that's that's I think where we can apply this message today. So with that, let's close in prayer. Lord, we ask earnestly that you would spare us of this plague. Lord, we think of the Passover. We are under the blood. We are inside our homes. We are resting in Christ. And so as the destroyer sweeps through, Lord, we pray that you would spare us, that it would skip over all of our homes, that nobody in our congregation would even get symptoms of this illness. But Lord, we know that that is very unlikely given the nature of how this progresses. And so in the midst of the hope that you will spare us, Lord, would you remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that even this illness can't take away from us. And Lord, through that hope, because of that hope, because of the beauty of the promise that you've made to us, would be—would you use us in the world? Would we be useful to our neighbors and to our friends? And help us to share the love of Christ in tangible as well as verbal ways. And we ask these things in his name for his church and for his glory in the world. Amen.